Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new episode of your law podcast. This is your host, Ozzy V. And with me as always on this program is the one with the knowledge, the one with the power, because knowledge is power. He is Andre Verdun, attorney at law. First episode of the new year, and this time, it's personal. <laughs> yeah, How are you in this two. new year? Well, I was just going to say, you've survived 2020. That's a lot of luck on your side right there. If, if I can be completely honest, uh, we're recording this January 4th. It feels like December 36th, 2020. <laughs> I mean, but that's not what this podcast is about. This podcast is titled Your Law Podcast. We're going to talk about the new laws that took effect in California in 2021. Now, I know I jumped the gun on that intro, but it seemed like a, such a smooth transition. Is there anything else you wanted to jump into before we get into these new laws? No, let's jump into it. California's Excellent. got some interesting laws on the book, and let's, let's dissect them. Now, I will say that we did get a question sent in that is currently in the research phase. So, in the meantime, if you have any other questions, you can send them to yourlawpod at gmail.com. Once again, yourlawpod at gmail.com. So, first, to kick off these new laws, first we have demilitarizing police uniforms, which law enforcement will no longer be allowed to wear uniforms that have camouflage or otherwise resemble military uniforms. Easy for me to say I'm I'm a fan of this, because usually when I mean when you see the police dressed in military gear, you see that overseas in developing <laughs> countries. So I'm a fan. I'm a fan. I, I I was actually very disturbed when I started seeing this type of uniforms on beat cops, which are the ones that are doing routine law enforcement. It should be noted that this law does not apply to the SWAT team or the sniper teams or the tactical teams. And it makes sense because these are the types of police officers that are engaged in quasi-military type work. And I think that it makes sense to allow those people to wear those types of uniforms. But I, I could tell you when I started seeing routine police officers wearing military police uniforms while engaging in civilian police work, it, it bothered me. And so I'm, I, I applaud California for doing this. I agree. And especially if you've seen Die Hard, though, you understand why a SWAT team shouldn't. I love all your movie references, Ozzy. (laughs) Keep them coming. Listen, I watched so many movies as a kid. My mom had to place a rule that there was a two-week rule that after I saw one movie, it started with Back to the Future and Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom. I couldn't watch those movies for another two weeks. And so I'd watch a lot of these movies every two weeks, basically. So that's where my head's at. That's why I'm the host, and you're the lawyer. Speaking of law, next one up. In case you <laughs> that don't means need... you're interesting, and I'm just knowledgeable, right? <laughs> Let's not get carried away. Now, in case you need another reason not to text and drive, it's already the law that you can't get caught with your phone in hand while driving, whether you're talking or texting. But now, two instances where you're caught with your phone in hand within 36 months will add a point to your record starting in July 2021. So you're caught once, you get a ticket for it, sure, that, and that's that. Twice within 36 months, you're going to get that point. And that, that's going to be annoying. I don't know if you have to go to traffic, if you can still go to traffic school to get that point, or uh, if that would apply. You can. They, they did change the rules to traffic school, though, uh, recently. And it used to be that if you went to traffic school for a violation, uh, you couldn't go to traffic school again for 18 months, mm-hmm. but 
regardless the the point that you would have received will never make it to your driving record. The rule now is, is that if you go to traffic school and you get a new moving violation within 18 months, the traffic school point pops back up. Oh. So you now have to do traffic school and stay traffic violation free for 18 months. And then after the 18 months, you could take traffic school again and that point goes away. Also, though it doesn't have a lot of significance for most people, it used to be prior to this law change that when you got it, went to traffic school, they would dismiss the case. That's not the case anymore. It stays a conviction, but the DMV will now shield the point from the DMV. So that only really matters when courts and judges in the future are looking at your driving record. They no longer see these dismissals. They're actually still, will show up as convictions. They're just not used against you in calculating your insurance premiums. I see. So that's a little side note. That, that, that's not a new law for 2020. A little no. side note, just a small side <laughs> note. And just to be clear, this is Assembly Bill number 47. Assembly Bill number 47, that's now with the new texting and driving, or just cell phone in hand while driving. And also just to cover bases here, the demilitarizing police uniform is Senate Bill number 480. Senate Bill number 480 for the law enforcement uniforms and Assembly Bill number 47 for the cell phone in hand. Now, next up is diversification of executive boards. Now, a law that went into effect in 2019 already requires publicly owned companies based in California to have at least one woman on the board. Now, by the end of 2021, any board with at least five members must also now have at least two women. And any board with six members has to have at least three women. Companies are also given another year to add even more diversity. Boards with at least four members need to have two or more directors from underrepresented communities, meaning, quote, an individual who self-identifies as Black, African American, Hispanic, Latino, Asian, Pacific Islander, Native American, Native Hawaiian, or Alaska Native, or who self-identifies as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. And this is Assembly Bill number 979. So this is uh, not difficult to talk about, but more challenging, if you will, because this, how you see it is based on your own personal political belief when it comes to affirmative action, which was actually on the, uh, the ballot earlier this year, or I should say late last year, technically. And it was voted down, but here, at least with executive boards, a lot of decisions are made, a lot of input is beneficial. And I'm a fan. I think it's, I'm assuming, I probably shouldn't use that word. I'm guessing that you're probably a fan too. You know, I'm certainly in favor of the effort that is being undertaken by this law. And, you know, if I was a legislator, I probably would have signed on to it. I would have signed on to it. My, my, you hear hesitation, obviously, in my voice. I don't know that this law is going to survive the Supreme, uh, Supreme Court challenge. Laws like this have been struck down recently for violating the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution. And my suspicion is, is that this law could very well die at the Supreme Court. Well, so we'll have a wait-and-see approach with this. <laughs> And that just goes to show you, just because the legislator thinks it's a good idea and, and they, they pass something doesn't necessarily mean the law is constitutional. 
So all of these laws are subject to legal attack. And so I wouldn't be surprised if a law like this was challenged and then they were to stay the implementation during the litigation phase of the law. And of course, if some of that happens, because we talked about it here, we'll, we'll update. Absolutely, we will. Now, next up is one that I'm a huge fan of. This is Assembly Bill 2717. Now, it's already against the law to leave a child in a car who's under six years of age unattended. A new law protects those who try and break into the car to rescue the child from civil or criminal liability for property damage or trespassing. Now, there's, of course, specific parameters that need to be met. In Section 2 of the bill, under 1799-101, Section A, a person may take any reasonable steps that are necessary to remove a child from a motor vehicle if the person holds a reasonable belief that the child's safety is in immediate danger from heat, cold, lack of adequate ventilation, or other circumstances that could reasonably be expected to cause suffering, disability, or death to the child. That was the first. Number two, a person who removes a child from the vehicle in accordance with paragraph one is not criminally liable for actions taken reasonably and in good faith if the person does all of the following. A. Determines the vehicle is locked or there is otherwise no reasonable manner for the child to be removed from the vehicle. B. Has a good faith belief that forcible entry into the vehicle is necessary because the child is in imminent danger of suffering harm if it is not immediately removed from the vehicle and, based upon the circumstances known to the person at the time, the belief is a reasonable one. C. Has contacted a local law enforcement agency, the fire department, or the 911 emergency service prior to forcibly entering the vehicle. D. Remains with the child in a safe location out of the elements, but reasonably close to the vehicle until a peace officer or another emergency responder arrives. E used no more force to enter the vehicle and remove the child from the vehicle than was necessary under the circumstances. F. Immediately turns the child over to a representative from law enforcement or another emergency responder who responds to the scene. So, tons of things that gotta go on. Yeah. 911 being one, that's number, th- number three on the list, but at least the protections are there. It had to have means something had to have occurred. Um, Obviously, not to popular knowledge, but I'm glad it's in there. Yeah, I heard the word reasonable about a billion times in there. <laughs> right. It reminds me of my uncle sent me something on Facebook. It was like a Christmas card from your lawyer, and it's a, it's a Christmas card, but it's redlined. And it says, I wish you, and then has a red line, but in no way guarantee, A, and then has a red line, reasonably, Merry Christmas, and then has that crossed out, or red line that says and or festive period uh, <laughs> and, and the period's punctuation or a festive including but not limited to a reasonably happy new year's i feel like legislators use that word reasonable a lot in order to create room for error right you have to be reasonably certain that the child's in danger you have to be reasonably certain that there's no other way without damaging property to enter the vehicle to save the child. But if you look at 1799.101, which is where the new law is going to be codified, Section C, I'm very troubled by how they define child. For the purposes of this section, child means a child who is six years of age or younger. (laughs) 
Hey, kid, how old are you? Yeah, and I feel like of, of all the places they should have used the word reasonable, it should have been there. Like, <laughs> right. uh, something to the effect of, for the purpose of this section, child should mean a person that the person reasonably believes to be six, age, uh, six years of age or younger, because literally, the child is six months and three weeks, and oh, well, we would have arrested you for vandalizing someone's vehicle, but yeah, he's not six. He's actually eight. It's got yeah. a growth thing. Or, or I should say seven, yeah, seven years and three months. You would still be six if you're six or three months. But uh, I, I think the point's made. So I think the law fails there. Now, I will tell you that while this statute creates explicit protections, you probably could have used the common law rule of necessity to defend yourself here, which is a law that allows you to do to damage people's property when it's necessary to carry out a life-saving function, but it is nice that there is something in writing that specifically statutorily provides that. The other issue is this law doesn't protect animals. Right. And that bothers me. I tell you, I've I've heard of children being locked in cars and, and being medically injured and even killed. I've seen situations where I've seen dogs in cars in ways that concern me. And so I have to believe that that circumstance is probably more common than children. And I would like to see some protections for animals. And I think that the, the cutoff of six is a little too low. And think that the law should be rewritten to allow a reasonable mistake when it comes to the age of a child. So those are my, my that would be my edits <laughs> if I was the legislator writing this law. Right. Well, who knows? Maybe we'll get something in 2022. There's always a place to go. Now, next up is uh, not a lot of time I'm going to spend talking about this. This is Assembly Bill 685, which is a coronavirus exposure law, which is in effect from 2021 to 2023, which requires businesses to notify employees and the general public of a coronavirus exposure at the workplace within a day of exposure. Once again, that is Assembly Bill 685. 85. I don't have much to say about this. This is pretty much, you know, it's got to happen. So that is that. Yeah. I, all I'm going to say is I just, I think we all got coronavirus fatigue. Right. So <laughs> we don't need to delve into that. Yeah. Just hope this thing, this vaccine gets out there and we can move past this as soon as possible. Let's move on. Absolutely. Next up, minimum wage going up starting January 1st. California's minimum wage is per hour at companies with 26 or more employees and $13 per hour at companies smaller than that. It is part of the phased increases that would eventually make the state's minimum wage $15 per hour. This was something that had been going on. This is part of the phase. Anything else you wanted to add? No, I I was pretty involved in the fight for 15 that largely led to this being passed. And I think $15 an hour was great <laughs> five years ago, and I, I don't think it's sufficient today. So that's just my opinion about it. Well, that is that. Now next up is Assembly Bill 3121, which is a task force on reparations. A new law establishes a task force to study the history of slavery in the United States and how that legacy is still impacting slaves' descendants today. After researching and hearing witness testimony, the task force will recommend how reparations would be paid out in California and who would receive those payments, if such a program were implemented. 
and that is Assembly Bill 3121. Any thoughts on this one? Uh, we'll see what the task force says. <laughs> we'll see what the task force says. All right, we'll leave it up. I think reparations them. is and a that... tough one because I certainly am very, very strongly of the belief that we need to deal with this country's history of racism. And I think one of the things that we fail to do is have conversations around it. It's a very uncomfortable conversation, and we don't talk about it. You go to Germany, you can't go two blocks without seeing something that reminds you of the Holocaust. You go to Rwanda, and there's always they want you to know about the genocide there. And in the United States, we've never had an honest conversation about our past, and I think it's kept us from moving past it. I can tell you my personal belief is, and I know that this is a hot-button issue, uh, is that reparations should look like universal health care and universal education, but it should be applied to all people. But I, I really feel like having the conversation to move past our history is the first step. And I think ensuring access to quality health care, housing, and education is the way to go. But again, we'll see what the task force says. We shall. Next up is Assembly Bill 2147, which are opportunities for inmate firefighters. The new law allows people who worked on inmate fire crews while incarcerated to petition the court upon release to have their records cleared. That would make it easier for them to get a job after release, including as a professional firefighter. Those convicted of sex offenses and certain violent felonies are exempt. Love that last line there. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for it. Especially if somebody want, wants to join or become a firefighter, I am all for that. Those guys. Yeah. Firefighting jobs are really, really competitive. They're really hard to get. This is a law that I'm very much in favor of in theory, because uh, I've had a lot of clients who've done fire camp and have done it year after year. And here in California, it's a, it, it's becoming a really big problem. And I find it unfair that these people will go to fire camp and risk their lives uh, and receive this very critical training on how to fight these fires. And then once they're out of, and they're not compensated for that, not in a way that really is appreciable. And remember that the 13th Amendment, when it abolished slavery, there's an exception in there for those who are incarcerated. So slavery, is, slavery still exists in this country under the Constitution because it's permitted. And certainly one form of slavery that exists is these, in my opinion, these fire camps. Now, I, I say that with some reservation because I've heard a lot of people argue that we should stop the fire camps and not be using this labor. And I can tell you, my clients that sign up for a fire camp and get to go, love it. It's really important to them to be able to go out there and have a sense of freedom, but also to be able to contribute to their community. And it's really great for the rehabilitation process. However, I don't think that, quote, clearing the records is enough. We still don't have a true expungement system in here in California. So even when someone gets their records, quote, cleared or expunged, all that happens is, is that the conviction becomes a dismissal pursuant to 1203.4. And everyone who's an employer knows that that means it's been expunged. Whereas in other states, well, some states don't have any system, but other states have a true expungement, which means that the, the criminal convictions actually erase from the public. So when there's a criminal background check, that these things do not appear at all. And certainly in the case of firefighters or, or these fire camp workers who are risking their lives and, and really contributing to their community, I don't think that this type of cloaking of the 
convictions in a way that people still know what it is really matters. They still know what the conviction is. They know that they were convicted and they know that it was expunged, what we call an expungement. What we need is a pardon or something to the effect of a pardon that truly removes these convictions from these people's records and allows them to go out there and have another shot at life. If they can be trusted to be put out in front of a fire where they could easily escape and they stay there and they fight and they, and they really take those efforts to show that they have rehabilitated, we need to give them a true shot. I think it's really, really unlikely that any of these people are going to become firefighters when I hear how competitive these jobs are, but they may be able to use those skills in other ways. They may be able to come back and be a volunteer firefighter during the, the high periods. I don't know, but certainly when it comes to making jobs available for these people, or in many cases, housing, because once you get a criminal conviction, housing becomes difficult. Getting financial aid for things like food becomes difficult. So uh, I would love to see this law beefed up to say that if you're willing to go out there and fight a fire and you do so in a way that's honorable, that you get a true reward that really allows you to start all over. 100%. Uh, and you mentioned that, you know, even if they can't land a job, they have the valuable skills. I mean, you never know what could happen in a situation. They could be at any location and the house across the street's on fire. You know, it's, it's best to have. I mean, as many people trained on that as possible and, yeah, you know, like you said, yeah, it's com competitive, but those are life-saving skills. Mm -hmm. The more people with those skills, the better. And, you know, if uh, this helps them in any way, I mean, granted, this date's competitive, sure, but if it could help them in the future, all the better. Yeah. And remember, they're not just going out there and spraying water on a fire. I mean, this is ditch digging. This is using heavy equipment. There's a lot of things that these people have to learn. These folks have to learn in order to engage in this firefighting process. So while they may not actually ever become a firefighter, you know, maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's my gut feeling. Be able to go to an employer and say, you know, I've learned all these skills. I worked on these firefighting crews. I'm able to, it demonstrates the ability to learn. It demonstrates the ability to work hard. It demonstrates the ability to adapt. And I don't know how you inform employers of those skills without saying, and by the way, I got it while serving a prison term, but certainly I think that more needs to be done than just the shielding process. And not just for people in fire camp, for people who've really demonstrated reform. Uh, the only way in California to truly get a criminal conviction off your record is to be very, very lucky and succeed in obtaining a, a government pardon. So unless the governor of the state of California pardons you, that conviction will always be with you no matter what. And next up along the, kind of along the same vein, is youth criminal justice reforms. Starting January 1st, Assembly Bill 901 prevents kids who are acting out in school from being referred to probation programs or becoming a ward of the court. Instead, they'll be referred to community support services. Starting in July, the state will be phasing out juvenile prisons. Another law also makes it easier for minors in police custody to get legal counsel before being questioned. I won't even get into the last part. The fact that youth can still be questioned in the state of California without their parents present or without an attorney present, I, I, it's maddening to me when we've already proven that there's youth that have committed, who have admitted to crimes they didn't commit in this state and gone to prison for it. The fact that this, there's been efforts in the state to 
change the law so that underage children cannot be questioned without their parents present or to re- require them to have a attorney present and those still have not passed in the state. And so on that point that it makes it easier for minors in police custody to get legal counsel, ain't enough. That is that falls for, far short of what we need to do. And that shows you even in uh, a, quote, progressive legislator, there's some definite blind spots. Though the fact that this law tries to end the school to prison pipeline and, and to stop incarcerating school children as criminal offenders and putting them in a custodial environment that looks a lot like jail or a lot like prison is a good move. I, I applaud that. But the bottom line is, is police should not be using tactics that they use against adults, against children, without protections in place. Absolutely not. Should never happen. Well, at least we got some positive there with, uh, once again, AB901. AB901. Now, next up is Senate Bill 1383, which is family leave for more workers, where current law requires companies with 50 or more employees to offer 12 weeks of family leave. This law will greatly expand those protections by requiring companies with five or more employees to grant the same amount of family leave. Yes, this is a positive. However, when compared to other countries and their family <laughs> leave, it's kind of like uh, we're, we're screaming about the saltines we were given when somebody across the river is getting a feast. Maybe that's not yeah. the greatest analogy, but it's along the same lines. I understand what you're saying. And remember, this is 12 unpaid weeks of leave. <laughs> right. So in the circumstances you're talking about, not only is it far longer, but it's compensated. Certainly, I believe more can and should be done here. But we're going to talk in a minute about the uh, protections for student loan borrowers. Now, hold on a second. You mentioned the protections for student loan borrowers. Before we get into that, because I know you'll get sidetracked and just take that over. (laughs) You know me well. The family leave for more workers, in case you need more information, this, this was... Senate Bill 1383, Senate Bill 1383, but now this is protections for student loan borrowers. This is Assembly Bill 376, and Assembly Bill 376 implements a host of new protections for student loan borrowers and makes it harder for lenders to take advantage of people who may not know all their rights or how to navigate the complicated system. When I say complicated system, those are my words there specifically because indeed it is complicated. This goes into effect July 2021. So now you can jump into the uh, student loan (laughs) borrower protections here. Yeah, I just really believe that education in this country is far more expensive than it needs to be. There is a very, very top-heavy system that's been employed in in this country where administrators get paid an awful lot of money. And it's at the cost of an affordable education. And if you look around the, the rest of the world where there's really high level of quality education, the prices just doesn't match up. And so because of that knowledge, I'm not bothered by people who are trying to get out of paying student loan debt. You know, when I hear these stories about people who have student loan debts that are equal to a home mortgage and unable to get out from under that debt because of the fact that they're not making enough because not even law professors, we're talking about people above that. 
are, are making really, really, really obscene incomes in order to educate our community. And then, you know, there's these efforts against universal education. And California used to provide a free college system, a free university system here. And you couldn't even obtain that type of a system anymore because of the administrative costs and the, the top-heavy nature of education. So, of course, I don't want to overstate what this law does. This law is simply a law that requires that student borrowers to be, one, informed, and two, not lied to. So, this in no way... that we have to have that in law. <laughs> yeah. Look, it, it is sad because, again, I, I've... In my law practice, we deal with a lot of people who are being pursued for debt, and that obviously includes oftentimes education debt. And oftentimes, when people have a hard time paying their student loans and they reach out for help, they're not given the best option for them. They're, in fact, there's been some lawsuits recently, some class action lawsuits about this, that they're driven toward the types of options that lead to higher costs and higher interest. And they're not given notice about other options that would benefit the student that are legally afforded to them through federal law. So this law extends some of the protections of the Rosenthal Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, which I think we talked about in this podcast before, to student borrowers. But really, it it focuses around requiring to give students the right information and not mislead them. It doesn't address some of the concerns that I have and will continue to have about education costing too much, where schools, especially these online or distance learning educations, oversell their, the benefits of their education or oversell the quality of their education in order to get students to take on massive loans and then get nothing from it. No ability to work, no ability to really be provided the promises made. And even if they can go through the school for some type of false advertising, they, they certainly don't usually get out from under the massive loans. And these loans are not dischargeable through bankruptcy in most cases. They're treated a lot differently than a standard loan. And so um, this is a nice law that, like you said, just does what really you shouldn't need a law to do. But again, it doesn't go far enough. Student loan debt is becoming a massive issue in this country. And I think we're going to see a lot more laws in the coming years that are going to try to address this issue. But I think really in order to address the student loan issue, you need to, you need to address the cost of education in this country until you get that fixed. I don't know what you're going to do. Uh, You know, telling people that you have the right to know your rights. is nice, but having to uh, take out a quarter of a million dollar loan to get a education is just unreasonable. Now getting back to the bill. There's that word reasonable again. Right. (laughs) Getting back to Assembly Bill 376, if anybody listening is interested in what these specific items are that is now codified in law, it is quite a long list. But I will say at the top of the list, now I'm looking specifically in Section 2, Subsection 1788.101, rather Subsection B, a student loan servicer shall not do any of the following. Number one. Directly or indirectly employ a scheme, device, or artifice to defraud or mislead a borrower. Like, (laughs) I'm laughing because that had to be placed in law in 20, like, that wasn't just, I, you know. But anyhow, this is, there's a slew of things. 
on this as well. Once again, Assembly Bill 376. And in case you are listening, yes, of course, I will have links to these specific bills posted in the description. And just so you know, uh, just so everybody is aware, this law is extremely long. I I would venture to say that this law is probably longer than the bill is longer than all the other laws we talked about today and we'll talk about today combined. I'm currently actually reviewing this law for possible enforcement down the line. So as a warning, we may come back to this when I've had, and my office has had an opportunity to fully uh, digest the statute. Interesting. And of course, anything that we can share on the subject, we definitely will. Now, next up was Senate Bill 793, which was due to place a ban on flavored tobacco products. However, this has been delayed now due to a group getting over 623,000 valid signatures. Currently, the signatures are being verified to make sure they're authentic. If this is the case, would lead to a new statewide vote on the ban of flavored tobacco products. This is similar to what we talked about when we talked about, if you remember, the uh, cashless bell law that was passed by the legislator, and then the bell industry was able to create a coalition, gather signatures, and put the statute up for what we call a referendum, which if the referendum passes, the law stays in effect. If the referendum fails, like it did with the cashless bell system, the law actually gets invalidated, never takes effect, and then the status quo stays in place. And so obviously, when you're talking about the tobacco industry, Reynolds Tobacco Company, Philip Morris, and all the others, they've got a lot of money at stake here because they're the primary benefactors off these tobacco products. So they're going to be funding an election effort to get this law nullified through a referendum. And any more information on the Senate bills, that was 793, Senate bill 793 regarding flavored tobacco products, which we just mentioned could potentially be held to a statewide vote and referendum. Now, a couple of propositions that did go into effect at the beginning of the year. First was Proposition 17, which was voted into law, and it restores felons' right to vote after the completion of their sentence. We didn't spend a lot of time, I believe we uh, talked about Proposition 19 on a Proposition Recap episode. There wasn't a whole lot to talk about on that one. If anybody's curious, you are more than welcome to check out that episode as it is still up. Next up is Proposition 19, which we did spend a bunch of time talking about. In case anybody needs a refresher, this narrowly passed in November, and it changes some of California's laws around property transfers. Starting in February, those who inherit property have to use it as their primary residence or have its tax value reassessed. Starting in April 2021, homeowners 55 or older or those who lost their home in a disaster will also be able to transfer their tax assessment to a more expensive home three times instead of the currently allowed one time. In this proposition, any additional tax gained from the reassessment would be going towards emergency aid, fire emergency aid, this as well. So Correct. There would be a fund established. And also this law allows you to transfer your assessed tax value in any county. So remember previously, there was a law passed so that if a, of another county wanted to, they could import a, a tax assessment from another county. 
This allows you to move your tax assessment to any county in the state of California. So it, it really increases the transferability of the tax assessment. And again, we did speak on this one. If you needed to or would like to check that out, that episode is available as well. And this reaches the end of the new laws of 2021. Andre, before we head out, any final notes or any uh, resolutions I guess you'd want to share? <laughs> well, my resolution this year is to lose this, uh, my COVID-20, my COVID I'm calling it now. COVID, wait, you still have it? I still have it. Wait, you still have COVID? No, my COVID-20, my, my extra 20 pounds that oh, I gained from being... Oh, I, I thought like, <laughs> wait, did you get that new strain? Okay, yes. <laughs> we, uh, there's got to be some the sort COVID-20. of... The COVID-20. Everyone calls it the COVID-15. I'm, I, I, I put on an extra 5 15? pounds. Yeah, yeah, I think we all put on a lot more than 15. <laughs> I shouldn't say all. Some people are great went crazy working out at home. Good for you. I wish I had that willpower. Now, next up, we... One of the lawyers I talked to told me that he's been eating lettuce for dinner every day, and he's not gained any weight, so good for him. More power to you. Now, before we head out, any contact information for specifically the law office of Andre Verdun, you could email office at verdunlaw.com or even visit the Facebook page at facebook.com slash verdunlaw. And any questions that we can answer on the podcast, you can send those in to yourlawpod at gmail.com. Once again, yourlawpod at gmail.com. Once again, he is attorney at law Andre Verdun, and I'm Ozzy V, and we'll see you next week right here on your Law Podcast. Thank you.